Psalm 93, and uh, we're just going to take a brief walk through Psalm 93 and make some observations, and and hopefully the, the Lord will use this to to encourage you and to strengthen you. I um, when Ryan had asked me to to do Sunday school, I was kind of disappointed because I'm like, man, it's been going so well. Um, I'd be the one to mess it up for sure, um, but. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I'm, I'm sure you do. Everyone that has that I've talked to, um, Sunday school especially, has been very encouraging and just packed with, with good, solid theology, uh, learning more about our Lord and uh, reading His Word and getting to know a little bit more about Him. Um, and kind of in keeping with that, I, I didn't want to stray too far from that, but <clears throat> I was led to Psalm 93. In reading, and um, it just really stuck out. The uh, Psalm 93 and following are, are so uh, majestic, uh, talking about our Lord. Uh, but why don't we read Psalm 93, and then we'll uh, we'll jump in. Uh, Psalm 93: The Lord reigns; He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed; He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the waves, pardon me, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Why don't we pray? Our dear Father, we we thank you for your word today, and we do ask that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, apply the word that we will uh, that we have read, that we will look at, and that we are going to study in a in a very um, brief way today. I pray that you would apply this to our hearts. Uh, may we be truly uh, taken back and in awe of your majesty, your power, uh, your greatness, and may we see ourselves in light of who you are. And I pray that you would help us to worship you and to praise you in a manner that is accepting in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Um, Psalm 93 is one of the first psalms uh, of a group of psalms. Um, Going from Psalm 93, uh, many people don't count Psalm 94 because it isn't exactly in line with the rest of them as far as theme, but um, psalms that are referred to as enthronement psalms, uh, psalms that emphasize the kingship of the Lord. We see Psalm 93, Psalm 95, 96, uh, 97, 98, and 99, uh, calling out and recognizing God as the one who reigns. He is the king. He's the mighty one. And um, Jews often consider these messianic psalms. One day, as they looked forward to the coming Messiah, they would say that all of these things are things that the Messiah will accomplish uh, when he comes. Uh, we, we see that, that uh, the Lord is referred to here as powerful and mighty, as we have read. Uh, the very first verse, the Lord reigns. In fact, this is a, a recurring theme through these psalms. Uh, psalm uh, 96 and verse 10 mentions it. Psalm 97 starts that way. The Lord reigns the same with Psalm 99. Over and over again, it is repeated that, that God is king. He is the king. 
Um, in, in studying the, um, uh, the nature of God and the being of God as we've been studying, um, as I had said before very briefly, I was kind of impressed to, to continue in something similar um, along the lines of that. And I, I was doing some reading and studying for this uh, lesson today, and I, I read a quote by Matthew Henry, and he says this, Next to the being of God, there is nothing that we are more concerned to believe and consider than God's dominion, that Jehovah is God and that this God reigns. Not only that he is the king of right and is the owner and proprietor of all persons and things, but that he is king in fact and does direct and dispose of all creatures and all their actions according to the counsel of his own will. And when you really get down to it, where, where does the, the study of the nature and the being of God lead us? Is to recognize that he is the supreme one. He is the king above all. Uh, he is uh, the ultimate ruler. And so here in Psalm 93, the psalmist starts out and he emphasizes this. He proclaims it, in fact. He says, the Lord reigns. So we lead off with a proclamation. The Lord reigns. Uh, similar terminology is used um, in the Old Testament in describing kings and their ascension to the throne. Uh, 2 Kings 9.13, we see Jehu being announced as king. Uh, Absalom um, announces himself pretty much as king in 2 Samuel 15 and verse 10, and also Adonijah in 1 Kings 1, uh, verse 11 and 13. He is announced as king in a very similar way using similar terms. And some people would look at this and they would say, well, there is, there is a similarity uh, in recognizing the verbiage used here in Second Kings and looking at Psalm 93. And so some people would say, and, uh, and I'll just kind of lay out for you what they would believe. They, they would say that this, this is a, a, a time we can look at where Jesus or, or God um, is ascending the throne of power. He, and some people would interpret this as saying the Lord be, is beginning to reign or the Lord uh, is beginning his reign. Um, but the question I ask myself is, are, are we really to understand uh, this proclamation in that way? Uh, we can think of the Lord as king, and the Lord uh, is reigning as king. We can recognize that as the present truth, but was there ever a time when the Lord did not reign? And, and so in, in, in a two different ways, we can look at this uh, statement as the Lord reigning. Um, I would say, first of all, no, we can't look back to a time, the Old Testament never points to a time, uh, when the Lord was bestowed with this power and authority. God has always um, had the power and authority that is inherent to him. In fact, he is the one who bestows power and authority to human kings and human kingdoms. He is the one by whose authority they derive their authority. So, no, there was never a time when authority was bestowed upon God or God began his reign, so to speak. God has always reigned. He has always been king. Um, in fact, we'll look at um, verse number 3, or 2 and 3, uh, coming up, uh, where the psalmist emphasizes that fact. He says, the Lord, your throne is established from of old. Um, basically pointing back to the, the Hebrew, it, it's kind of pointing to then, like this, this um, mysterious past point prior to any beginning uh, be, before 
uh, eternity past ever was. He was God and his throne had already been established. So we, we can't really point back to a time where the Lord began his reign, but yet in some sense there is a time where we can look at this and um, commentators mention what they call the prophetic perfect tense. In other words, they, they are, there's a, an event or something so certain that they can speak of it in the past, if that makes sense. In other words, uh, talking about the Lord uh, reigning in Zion, we, we can look, uh, look forward to the book of the Revelation and see God's final conquering of death and hell and sin and Satan, all of these things, the culmination of, of his reign, and we can speak so certainly of that uh, because God has promised that it will be so. And so he, and there are some portions where Hebrew scholars believe that the psalmists and, and other authors in the Old Testament refer to a future time, uh, but refer to it in the past tense, uh, indicating that God has prophesied and it will surely come to pass as he has said. So there is a sense in which, yes, one day we can look forward to the time when Christ will be revealed uh, and finally and fully conquer his enemies. Uh, and yes, that that is uh, to yet come to pass. It is a future time. Uh, and Psalm 93, as well as Psalm 96 and 98, also draw attention to this. Uh, look at look at Psalm 96 very briefly. Uh, Psalm 96:10. Uh, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established; it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So we, we see, in a sense, a future. He will judge. The Lord, we know the Lord is judging. He is reigning. He is ruling. Uh, but there will be a time when that is uh, accomplished in perfection and final completion at the last day. Uh, and Psalm 89 basically reiterates uh, what, what Psalm 96 has, has already stated, so we won't belabor that point. So we see it. It leads off of the proclamation, the Lord reigns. This is an exciting thing. It should stir a joy in our hearts to recognize that our God, the one who created us, the one who has redeemed us, he has saved us, he has delivered us uh, from uh, the wrath of God, he is ruling and he is reigning even at this very moment. God is in control. He is reigning, he's exercising power and authority. So this is the song of, in fact, we can recognize it here, but this is the song of the redeemed in, in Revelation chapter 19. And I'll, I'll turn there very quickly. Revelation 19 and verse number 6. Scripture says, um, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And beloved, if we are going to be celebrating the reign of our Lord in such a, a wonderful way and, and with such excitement and joy, sh shouldn't that be our attitude even now? To rejoice in the fact that our God reigns and that he is ruling? So uh, we see that God does reign, but how does he reign? And we'll uh, notice a few things from this, uh, the rest of the psalm to see how God reigns. Um, first of all, he reigns in majesty. It says, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. In 
Bible times, uh, clothing was considered to be an extension of the person. In fact, I, I was looking in, um, just kind of briefly past my, my mind when I was studying for this, and I was thinking about when the woman uh, with the issue of blood came and she touched the hem of Christ's garment. And Jesus stopped in the midst of that crowd and he said, who touched me? Now, I wasn't sure if that, that was uh, very similar to, to the thinking of that time as the, the clothing being the extension of a person. But here in, in Psalm 93, God, the, the clothing that the Lord is robed with is descriptive of him. It is not something apart from him. It describes God. The Bible says he is robed in majesty. Majesty and strength are his uh, clothing, his robes. So let's look at this word majesty. Um, majesty is a, uh, comes, our English word majesty comes from the Latin, meaning greatness or dignity. In fact, in many places across this world, it's often still refer, used to refer to a ruler or a supreme uh, king or queen, prince, or other ruler. They refer to these people as his majesty or her majesty or your majesty when addressing them. But the, the Hebrew word is, is slightly different. It doesn't carry the, exactly the same meaning. The Hebrew word in, I, I try to pronounce this correctly, is geuth. And this word is also translated proud. It's translated arrogantly. It's translated raging. All of these words used um, as the same word that is used here when the Bible speaks of the majesty of the Lord. This word shares a root word with the word of the Hebrew word to denote pride, ge'ah. And this root word means simply to rise. So when we think too much of ourselves than we ought to think, our thoughts of ourselves are lofty and high and lifted up, uh, we have ge'ah, we have pride. We are lifted up within our minds. We have arrogance. We have this great sense of, of self-worth and often not in keeping with reality. Uh, we tend to think... A lot of ourselves, don't we? Um, just, bef- just before uh, Sunday school, I had asked, <laughs> I'd asked Ryan. I said, um, "I said, are we going to do like a prayer request?" And he's like, "No." He said, um, um, "I said," he said, "I know. I don't want you to do prayer requests." He's like, "I'm killing it." And I thought that meant like I'm doing a really good job with the prayer request, so I want to do that, and then you can come up and teach. That's not what he was saying. But oftentimes, you know, and uh, just in passing, we, we think of things like that, but often we think a lot of ourselves. And we think, man, I really am doing a great job at whatever it is I do. I'm the, I'm the best father that there is out there, or I'm the, the best worker at my job. Any, anything, we, we tend to have inflated thoughts of ourselves. But, and, and often, and I, I think every time when we, we think in that way, in a prideful way, it's sin. It's sinful to have those thoughts of ourselves that are not in keeping with what the reality truly is, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So how are we to understand this word or this concept in relation to God? Well, think about it. When we think too highly of ourselves, that is a false thought, is it not? 
We, the, the, our thinking of ourselves is not in keeping with what reality is. It's a false thing. Something that we've made up in our mind to either make us feel better or to, to boost our self-esteem or whatever it may be. But it's not the truth. However, when you apply this to God, who is utterly above all, and his greatness cannot be adequately described... It is not a false thought. It is the truth. And so here it says he is robed in majesty. What this is talking about is it's talking about the greatness and the esteem and the value that is to be placed upon our great God. This is not talking about God having pride in himself. That's not what it's saying, but it's talking about the, his greatness and his power. Like the English definition that we have, greatness or dignity, God is so far above us. He is superlative. He is above not only us, but every other being, every other creature. I shouldn't even use the term every other creature because God is not a creature. He was not created. But he is greater than creation. He is the creator. And so when the psalmist says here, he says, the Lord reigns he is robed in majesty. It's pointing to his, his greatness, his dignity, his, um, his being above everything that is. When kingship is used um, in the Old Testament, it's often used, it's either used in one of two ways. Uh, when speaking of the Lord as king, uh, talking about his kingship uh, based upon his creation. And also uh, it's used to refer to his kingship over his people. Uh, in fact, if you, if you notice when, uh, I believe when the Lord was uh, talking with Samuel, he says, uh, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being their king. But God is great. He is, he is uplifted. He is above us. He is above all. And we need to, to worship him and honor him uh, in that way. So we see his robes are majesty. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. So he's robed in majesty and also strength. Um, this speaks not just of a, a prince or a king in their, their regal attire and their robes, but this speaks of a king uh, ready to go to war in their armor, so to speak. God has, it says, the Bible says, he has put on strength as his belt. He has put on strength as his belt. And it's very interesting to see um, that this is something that comes from God. It is not something that is derived from outside of himself, but something that is from within himself. Where does God derive his strength? From himself. He is God. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. And the strength of God is, is not bestowed upon him by anyone else, nor is he dependent upon anyone else to exercise his power or his strength. As Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. According to the counsel of his own will, he chooses to exercise his power and to show himself strong. So he's clothed in majesty and he is clothed in strength. And what is the result of this? Notice verse, uh, verse number one, the latter part. It says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. 
part of the exercise of God's power was in creating. And uh, as you, uh, Sunday, as we've been going through in uh, Genesis on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon for the worship service, we've been seeing the power of God displayed in creation. And uh, each and every one of those verses uh, just uh, in Genesis just is, is astounding to think of the, the magnitude of our, of our world, of our galaxy, of the many other galaxies that are out there. Uh, seeming just as a, a, a parenthesis in the God's creation, he made the stars also. Uh, it's it, um, amazing the magnitude of creation, and it shows the power of God. But notice in verse number one, it says, yes, the world is established. Uh, the fact that the world is established and stable uh, can only be owed to God, because he is the one who created, and as Colossians says, he is the one who sustains, who holds all the pieces together. So God's reign is universal. It's not limited to any city, any state, any county, nation. Rather, the whole world is his domain. Each and every part, he is the king over all. Now, this does not discount the, the kingdoms and the kings, the presidents, the, the queens, the rulers, or even the other so-called deities that are worshipped as gods. But every kingdom, every ruler, every false deity is nothing when compared to God. He reigns over all. His reign is universal. Here, the psalmist's emphasis is on the stability of the world. The world is established, it shall never be moved. This um, passage and other uh, passages in the Psalms were once taken to mean that, well, if the, the earth is not moved and it's not moving, then that means the entire universe revolves around the earth. Uh, but I don't believe the psalmist's intention was to necessarily discuss the relationship of planets with one another, but simply to say that this world is stable. It has been established by the power of God, it has been established. Not only the world itself and the things that are created, but also the order, justice, right, wrong. All of these things are established by God and proceed forth from who he is. Uh, Proverbs 21 and verse 1 uh, is one of my favorite verses. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. When we think about the, the seeming power that many rulers have these days uh, to do just things, but also to do unjust things if they so choose. The Bible says their heart is as a stream of water in the hand of God. And he can turn that stream wherever he desires to turn it. That's the powerful God that we serve. His reign is universal, but his reign is also eternal. Notice verse number two. It says, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. He has an eternal reign. The, in, in, um, in the past Sunday school lessons that we've done, it's amazing to think, the, the way that I think sometimes um, about God and the way that we, I think, collectively tend to think about God is in human terms, right? 
We think with our finite minds, trying to comprehend an infinite being, uh, an effort in futility, um, seemingly. But um, I had written down on my notes, you know, God has always been and always will be. And that's true. But even that statement shows my finite perspective. Because embedded with that, in that statement is an understanding and a reference to time. God has always been and he always will be. But God so far surpasses the, the finite thoughts of our minds. He so far surpasses time and space and all of these things. They are beneath him. And this thing, this uh, per, this uh, concept of eternity, uh, I remember when I was, I think, five or six years old, my dad said to me, he said, I just want you to think about something. I'm like, what? He's like, think about forever. And he just left me. He just walked off. And man, I was, my brain, I, there must have been smoke coming out of my ears trying to even fathom the concept of eternity. Because it's something that we, that we can't fathom, we can't comprehend, we can't relate to it. But the throne of God is established from of old. In the Hebrew, as I had mentioned before, it's, it's kind of referring to then, to a, a point beyond time. And he says, you are from everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. So his throne is eternal. There will never be a time when God does not reign. Not only that, but his throne is foundational. His reign is foundational. Where does this world derive its being, its sustenance? Where do kingdoms and kings and presidents of this world derive their authority? They derive it from God. We derive derive our being and the life, the the breath that we breathe, we derive it from God. God is the one who provides that. So the the existence of God and the reign of God is foundational to understanding anything else in this world. How do we understand what is truly right or wrong? How do we discern between two options? We can only discern, there can only be a right and there can only be a wrong because... God, because God is, and God is the one who decides and tells us what is right and what is wrong. There's a measurable standard, and in one sense, there is a, a, I say measurable, God is immeasurable, but he has given us a fixed point of reference. We can look at his word and his revelation of himself and know that something is right or something is not right upon whether or not it falls in line with what he has given us in his law. So the existence and the reign of God is foundational to the establishment of the world, is foundational to, as we'll look later in verse number five, your decrees or your testimonies are trustworthy. Holiness, the concept of holiness, all of these things point back to God. It is foundational to understanding ourselves, to understanding our world, all of these things. His reign and his kingdom, his throne is a foundational throne. Um, next, let's look in verse number uh, three and four uh, as at his supremacy. 
God reigns supreme. Here the psalmist um, makes mention of water. Verse number three, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Now, there, there are several interpretations to this and several ways that this passage can be understood, specifically verses 3 and 4. Some people look at this, the floods and the, the thunders of waters and the waves, and they would look at this figuratively and say, these things here are um, trials, per se, or opposition to God or to his people. And for this reason, some people will think that this psalm may have been written at a time of uh, dismay, a time of opposition or a time of tumult in uh, Israel. They would say that this speaks of some type of opposition that God is overcoming. That's one way to look at it. Uh, The second way to look at it um, describes it literally and saying that the psalmist here is just attempting to describe the greatness, the magnitude the power of the waves, the floods. Uh, if you've ever, ever seen the, um, the, the aftermath of a tsunami, uh, you know the, the great power and devastation that uh, waters like that can leave in their path. So someone would say, well, he, he's just using it to describe the greatness and terror of the waves and basically saying that God is greater than all storms and waves and all of those natural occurrences. That's another way. In in studying this passage, I found a very interesting interpretation and uh, one that I think may be a little bit of a stretch, but I'll I'll lay it out for you anyway. Some people look at this passage and they say that that in saying that God is mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, this was actually an affront to the God of the Canaanites, Baal, as we would say. And you say, well, how, how can that be? So... Baal was worshipped as the god of, or a god of fertility by the Canaanites. But he was also known as the god of rain and dew. Which adds um, some very interesting, um, coinciding with uh, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And they were calling out to Baal for rain, uh, and there to to, uh, consume the uh, offering that they had, had offered him. Um, but he was known as the god of rain and dew, and he gained this title uh, by defeating um, Yam, Y-A-M-M, um, the god of the sea. And by defeating Yam, god of the sea, he became this god of rain and dew, and it also made him the king of the gods. They considered him a one of the supreme gods in their um, polytheistic system. And some people would look at this and say, by mentioning the, the mightiness of the, the waves and the floods and uh, all of these things, it, it's basically showing that God is greater than that false god of Baal. Like I said, I, I, think, I think it's a little bit of a stretch to go to that, to that extent, but I don't disagree with their conclusion. Unquestionably, God is greater than any false god. 
but I don't necessarily believe that this was the, the point that the psalmist was trying to make. Um, Calvin wrote this about this passage. He said, I, I would not be inclined to insist too nicely upon any comparison that may have been intended. I have no doubt the psalmist sets forth the power of God by adducing one brief illustration out of many which might have been given. What he's simply saying is that the psalmist could have used a, a plethora of things to describe that are mighty, that are powerful. And yet God would have been greater than all of them. If we see, um, if, you, if you take time to read Psalm 93 through 99, you'll see many other natural things that we can see that are used um, in, to, to denote some, some semblance of might or power, and then it's declared that God is greater than them. For instance, we see mountains melting like wax. We, uh, the other Psalms speak of fire, clouds, and darkness, the sea, rivers, hills, earthquakes, all of these things. And yet God is greater than all. God is overall. All of these things bear witness to his majesty, to his power, and all of them glorify God. So we see that God is mighty and he is supreme. He is supreme over all. And here the psalmist used these, uh, these terms, the floods, and we can go to Isaiah and see how floods are used uh, to denote, they're obviously to denote judgment. We think of uh, the flood. Uh, how that God destroyed the world with a flood, uh, and just the, the magnitude and power that, that those waves and that water had. Uh, but God is greater still. God, it says, the Lord on high is mighty. Uh, some people say, well, on high means that means he's in heaven. But uh, it can all, I believe it refers to his position over all and above all. He is he's above all. He is supreme. Lastly, um, he reigns in trustworthiness and holiness. Notice uh, verse number five. He says, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Um, the word decrees here is the same word that's used in Psalm 119 uh, over and over to refer to God and his word as the word testimonies. In fact, that is the majority usage of this word in the Old Testament scripture. Uh, and he sees, we see here that the Bible says his decrees or his testimonies are trustworthy. Um, the um, New King James translates this very sure. His decrees are very sure. The NASB translates this as confirmed. Uh, but in any of these cases, we can know that the testimonies of the Lord, the decrees of God, are sure and will come to pass as God has decreed it to happen. But also his testimonies, when thinking of the, the word of God, uh, we can also attest to, uh, to that fact as well, that God's word is sure. Though heaven and earth will pass away, the Bible says, my words will not pass away. His word is forever settled. And we can have faith and we can be assured of the word of God because of the nature and the being of the God that revealed it to us. The God that revealed it to us is holy. He is wise. He is truth. And we can rely on his word because of who he is. 
Um, the second thing that we see is that um, not only are his decrees trustworthy, but this last phrase, it says, Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Holiness befits your house. Um, it's very interesting to, um, to read in Psalm, I believe, Psalm 33. Uh, the psalmist says, uh, Praise the Lord, uh, for praise is comely for the upright. In other words, it is a fitting thing for the upright to praise the Lord. And kind of in that same vein, here he says, holiness befits your house. This word is used two other times in Scripture, and it's not one that's very common, obviously, but it's uh, used in uh, Song of Solomon 1 uh, to describe um, this bride as lovely. Um, and also, uh, later on in the, um, in the Old Testament, it's used to, uh, to describe the feet of those that bring good tidings to Zion. How beautiful are the feet? It's the same word that's used here. And uh, uh, some, you could also say that holiness um, adorns your house. It's appropriate for your house. But um, more, more than what befit means... Um, I want to key on on just holiness and the house of God. Uh, we know God is holy. God is ultimately holy. Um, he is what um, He's perfect. Psalm or Matthew chapter six or Matthew chapter five, the latter part of that passage, we read that a couple Sundays ago. Be therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. But God also commands us to be holy. In fact, First uh, Peter one sixteen uh, brings us the same theme from the Old Testament. You shall be holy, for I, your God, am holy. So it says, holiness becometh or befits your house. And um, I never even thought of it this way, but as I was studying a little bit, I, I saw a little four-point outline that somebody had written under this, and uh, it's... It, divides the house of God into four different categories. One, it says, holiness becometh God's typical house, the temple. And I was, uh, my mind was drawn back to uh, the book of uh, Exodus, uh, where, where God gives us uh, just the, the amazing uh, detail with which uh, his, his house was to be constructed, the tabernacle, and then again, the temple, but also the, the separation that there was to be between the house of God and sin. And uh, truly, it can be said that holiness was becoming for God's house, the temple. But then he, this, uh, the second point under this was, um, he said, holiness becometh his greater spiritual house, the church. And when we think of what God is doing uh, amongst his people collectively and corporately, it is to, to bring us into conformity with his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8.28, we've all heard that verse. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. But verse number 29 says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, what God is working in us is our salvation. 
He has saved us from the wages of sin, death. He has redeemed us. He has made us alive. He's given us life in Christ. But in his work of sanctification in our life, he is working within us to mortify that sin and to deliver us from the power of sin in this life. He is working within us holiness. So he says here, his greater spiritual house, the church, is to be pure. We can go to uh, uh, Ephesians and see, and I believe it's Ephesians chapter 4 that mentioned as well. Um, but then he said, holiness befits his lesser spiritual house, the believer. I immediately thought of Paul where he says, don't you know that you're the temple of God? You're not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. And I got to thinking, if I am to judge myself by a, an unchanging standard, that standard would be God and his word, right? I can't look at Dennis and say, Dennis, I'm so, so much better at predicting weather than you are. I'm not, actually. I can't look at any one of you here and say, this is the standard by which I should judge my life. Well, if so-and-so does it, then it must be right. If so-and-so does it, then it must be okay. I need to judge myself according to God's standard of holiness. And God is working in us to produce holiness, sanctifying us, pricking our conscience when we sin, but yet offering uh, forgiveness and pardon so freely. Last thing he pointed to was, uh, he says, holiness becometh his eternal house, heaven. I saw another phrase when I was uh, reading this past week, and it said, uh, holiness is the oxygen of heaven. I thought that was interesting. Um. If we don't love holiness and pursue holiness here, um, I think heaven's going to be rather boring for us. I, and uh, this is, honestly, this is something that the Lord's been trying to teach me, is that I need to pursue holiness with a passion. Not half-heartedly, not uh, complacent, not limping along, but but a full-hearted uh, pursuing of him and the holiness that he will bestow upon us. Um, so how can we apply this to our hearts and lives? Um, the first thing I, I would say is that we can rejoice, be happy. There is no reason for a Christian to, to uh, have to, to mope around and be all down in despair with this life because our God reigns. He is in control, and he reigns over everything. Uh, the second th thing that we can do is uh, we can relax. We can rest, knowing that God is uh, working everything according to the counsel of his perfect will. There's nothing in your life that comes to, into your life by chance or by happenstance or by mistake Rather, God brings every circumstance into our lives to conform us to Jesus Christ, to grow us, 
Matthew chapter uh, 6, verse 31 through 34. Um, the Bible talks about um, what, why are you taking thought for all of these things in your life? Why, why are you worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to put on? And there's a, a, a little phrase in there that just hits me every time. It says, your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. Verse 32, your heavenly Father knows. And we can rest knowing he knows what we need. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, don't be anxious about anything. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's no reason for us to be anxious or worried or fretful, because God knows our every need, and God has promised that he will provide for his children. Uh, third, let's praise the Lord. It's very easy to, to, um, to think of something that we've prayed for earnestly. And then when God provides and he answers that prayer, how often uh, are we so quick to say, oh man, I'm just thankful for whatever secondary cause we can look at and say, that person met this need. No, God, through his power and through his providence, met your need. We can't look to ourselves. And we should not become uplifted in pride, thinking more of ourselves than we ought to think. Rather, we should look to the Lord and praise him because he is great above everyone and everything. And lastly, as we've already emphasized just a little bit, um, we need to seek holiness. We cannot be passive or complacent in purging our life from sin. Rather, let us pursue it passionately, knowing that God is holy and he calls us as his children to be holy as well. Why don't we pray? Dear Father, God, I pray that you would help us. Lord, help me. Lord, help me to truly recognize, Lord, your magnitude, Lord, your magnificence, your power, your strength. And may I, I truly understand the, the implications of your reign, Lord, in this world and in my life as a believer. Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us. Lord, as we, especially as we enter into our worship hour today, that we would, Lord, fall at your feet and praise you and honor you and give you uh, praise for the majestic, powerful God that you are. Lord, we have no right to come before you and to be in your presence, but Lord, through Christ, you have cleansed us. Lord, you have given us his righteousness. Lord, and you have taken our sin and our filth upon yourself. And Father, we praise you for that. I pray that you would... Uh, Work in our hearts, Lord, the remainder of this week. May we uh, truly uh, feel the, the impact of you being the, the one who reigns, our God supreme. Uh, bless us as we go into this next hour. I pray for uh, Pastor Ryan that you would uh, be with him as he uh, brings forth your word. And may we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.